I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we explore those principles and cultivate those virtues that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Well, welcome back for another episode, folks. So glad you've chosen to join us again. Really excited about our program today. We're gonna to be exploring, uh, maybe shifting gears a little bit, stepping back out of our legislative session where we're talking about all the all the, um, the details of bills that were before the legislative session uh, this year in South Dakota. We're gonna take a step back. We're gonna talk about uh, a, a papal encyclical um, that was published a couple of years ago, Laudato Si. We're going to talk about green Thomism and a book that I have just loved, The Joyful Mystery. I am joined today by the author of the book, Dr. Christopher Thompson, who is a, a professor of theology at St. Paul Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. Dr. Thompson, welcome to the program. Welcome. Thank you so much, Chris. Good to be talking with you. Well, like I said, I am. This is a this is a topic I just I just love. And I, you know, I think there's so much that we can say, and yeah. it, there's, there's just a lot there. So I want to just maybe start kind of right at the beginning by talking about this book that you put out a couple of years ago. It's called The Joyful Mystery. I saw it when it came out and I bought a copy. I gave it to my wife for, for Christmas. She read it first and then I picked it up. Um, really, a, I, I just thought a wonderful, beautiful book. Oh, praise and, the Lord. And, and what's the, maybe just to start with, like, what's the, what's the thesis of the book? Well, uh, the thesis was to, to, to uh, inspire in the reader uh, a path to enter more deeply into the Catholic faith and how it really illuminates our relationship to issues around ecology and the environment. Really try to encourage in the person um, uh, sort of an examination of conscience, frankly, on, on mm. what they profess in their faith and, and how they might develop some attitudes around issues of ecology. Ultimately, I wanted to really create the space in which a person would be more docile to the presence of the Lord veiled in creation and, and, and be more inspired then to enter into ongoing conversation with our Lord uh, in all of the circumstances they find themselves in. So that, that's the spiritual fruit I, I tried to aim for. So, you, and that definitely comes through just this spiritual aim of like wanting to provoke a deeper reflection within the human heart. There's right. this, the substance of the book, there's this term, Green Thomism, and I know right. you'd used the term before in in other writings, even before yeah. this book. But what do you mean by that term, Green Thomism? Sure, sure, and 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 the the, the term originates with me. Uh, so uh, what I'm trying to do is is capture uh, a convergence of sort of two communions of discourse. One would be Thomism, that is, those inspired by the thought of Saint Thomas Aquinas, 13th mm -hmm. century mendicant. And then the other would be the green movement sort of broadly understood, ecology, environmental awareness, environmental insensitivity, appreciation of nature. What I really tried to do was to essentially challenge each side uh, of, the, uh, of the conversation to say, you know, I think, I think there's a happy convergence between uh, the two and we need to explore that in order to enrich our conversations. Being an academic, I'm, I'm well-versed in the Thomistic conversation. And as academics are prone, we can get sometimes caught up in our own uh, distinctions and our own conversations and become insulated from what might be happening more broadly in the culture. 
Uh, I felt like the rise of environmental awareness was just low-hanging fruit for Thomism in particular. Uh, and we really wanted to drag, uh, draw, invite, <laughs> coerce, co uh, whatever the word is, invite my colleagues to take a look at this movement and think about it with the lens of St. Thomas. Um, and then on the other side, uh, you know, the rising awareness uh, around ecology across the culture has been something uh, you, you and I have experienced, I'm sure, in the last 10, 15 years. It just seemed like such a golden opportunity to introduce the values of the gospel and golden opportunity to introduce uh, people to think more deeply about some of the challenges that uh, environmental awareness and ecology raises for us. Well, and I think a lot of people will will recall, even if they haven't read the encyclical, they'll recall, you know, kind of making a splash even in sec secular news media. A couple of years ago, Pope Francis wrote a wrote an encyclical called Laudato Si. Your book right. follows on Laudato Si. But I, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that Pope Francis isn't being novel necessarily. He's following, I, I think I'm stating it correct, correct me if I'm wrong, really building on, even on John Paul's theology, the body. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And Benedict even was, was I think, referred to by, by some as the green pope. Right, right. He's uh, he made uh, really important contributions, and, and he's an intellectual giant in his own right. But he, it was interesting to see his concern in this regard. Uh, the the uh, I had been working on issues of the environment. Let me just contextualize a little bit. About five years before Laudato Si, in two thousand and seven. I uh, really stepped into the space with some uh, overt conversations and thoughts along this line, really asking my colleagues, the church at large, uh, sort of begging that the church would step into the question of the environment, mm -hmm. much more overtly than John Paul II did or Benedict did, as you mentioned. They, they, had their, um, they certainly had uh, pieces intellectually that contributed, and they would occasionally, you know, papal audiences, Wednesday audiences, maybe um, World Day of Peace was often an occasion where they would talk about ecology and things of that sort. Yeah. But there really wasn't a full frontal uh, uh, investigation or, or, or pronouncement on the question of, of uh, uh, ecology. And uh, Francis uh, stepped in. And, and from my money, now I know I'm really interested in the question, I think this is going to be uh, one of the things he's going to be remembered uh, for a very, very long time. It's one of the first times the church really addressed head on the question of ecology in such an intentional way. So kudos to Pope Francis for plugging what I think was a, a significant gap in our in our sort of our uh, apologetic uh, position. And frankly, just spiritually and intellectually, the, the environment and ecology was, was drifting away. It was becoming a concern of the left. It was becoming a concern of sort of political ideologues. And Catholics, it seemed to me, were increasingly alienated from the conversation. And that just struck me as so uh, at odds, frankly, with our Catholic faith. So, so I'm really, really grateful to see that that bridge was being uh, 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 crossed. Well, one of the things I've noticed, uh, Dr. Thompson, is, is that a lot of Catholics, including lots and lots of younger ones, they're, they're more interested in these issues, too. You know, they're eating right. cage-free eggs or they're right. delighting in the summer garden or maybe like me and my family, they're starting to keep bees. Right. Um, yeah. you know, yeah, I'm we a love, beekeeper myself. So we'll I, have that, to, I, that's, that's another show, it sounds like. Yes. It's another show, uh, part two, the, <laughs> okay. the, the theologian beekeeper. Right. So, uh, you know, the heirloom varieties, all this stuff, 
they and these people they find this stuff as sensible and praiseworthy as as is living the church's teaching on NFP natural family planning. Right. Are, are these people green Thomas? Uh, I'd like to think so, and they're and they're welcome to uh, claim it publicly now, and and not have to be so shy about it. No, I I I'd, I'd love to be uh, encouraging in these instincts. I think what's happening in the ecological movement generally. At its best, I'll say, the movement at its best. Are there yeah. crazy folks out there? Of course, there's crazy folks in every corner of these conversations. But I, I don't want to. I don't want to pick on you know the the odd ducks, but really take the movement seriously, uh, and say at its heart, I think is an unthematic revolt of conscience against sort of enlightenment philosophies that tended to treat nature as raw material. Mm. Just instinctively, people wanted to uh, respond to that and started to notice that it's such an alien view of my experience of the natural order. Yes. So part of the part of what I think the ecological awareness and movement tapped into was precisely that sort of pushing back, uh, uh, trying to reach into the human conscience to say, surely there's a there's a richer approach to nature and the issues of ecology than than simply treating it as raw material to be manipulated at our will. Uh, so, so largely in the movement, I think that was happening. And then young people generally just start to pick up on this. You know, they're highly uh, immersed in technology in a way that you and I can't uh, even begin to imagine. You know, the phones came fairly late in my life and uh, podcasts, including, and all of these devices now that completely absorb the modern imagination tends to cut people off from the natural order. And then there's this sort of joy of rediscovery of the simplest things around them. You know, they, mm. they, they raise tomatoes and they're, they're sort of swept away with the enthusiasm of it all, right? It's, it's, it's actually, a, I think, a, a wonderful thing because it brings them back into contact with the creator and the language of love that's nestled and hidden and veiled in the order of creation. So I'd love to call them all green Thomists uh, uh, and they're welcome to uh, share the title. Anybody, anybody, anybody's welcome. Well, and this, this, this phrase to integral ecology has come up where we talk about the human person and, and we all know that the, the church has a really well-developed ethics of the human person, if you will, a bioethics, mm -hmm. not a terribly well-developed ethics at all of lower creation, if we can call right. it that. Right. I remember even in my field, politics, the legal field, I was so struck by um, Benedict visited his home country in 2011 or 12 and gave this address to the German parliament and he even mentioned yeah. this. I don't know if you remember this, but he mentioned yeah. the, the the ecological movement as being maybe even like an entry point for us to have a renewed conversation. Right. It, which I think that's one of the really beautiful evangelical things. I want to share just a quote, uh, quotation from early in the book. You, you say the urgency of the task, sort of taking up this topic. So on page 11, at least on my part, by an anxious it's not driven, excuse me, the urgency of the task is not driven by an anxious concern about the future of the earth and its inhabitants. Instead, it is driven by the deepest desire to contribute to those conditions in which Christ is passionately loved and served in the furthest reaches of his universe, end quote. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? What do you mean? Well, in terms of the urgency? yeah, sure, sure. What, what, you know, it's kind of back to what we were just uh, some of the opening remarks about the fundamental aims of the book. I, I wanted to write on ecology, and I still love thinking about it and writing about it. And, uh, but I didn't want to be caught up in the sort of apocalyptic 
doom and gloom scenarios that that are capturing most of the discourse these days. And we have to be very careful about that. Um, I think, in fact, in fact, that, that's why so many people don't want to talk about the topic because it's just laden with all sorts of political landmines and all sorts of apocalyptic doom, and 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 tends to drift into extremism in one form or another. The problem is then uh, Catholics just back away. Uh, I would rather we not. We had rather we enter in fully alive and fully aware and fully animated in our faith and think deeply about these questions. So my point is to just say it's, it's I'm not motivated by um, threats of cosmic doom. Uh, and I don't mean to dismiss the science. I'm just saying that that wasn't my concern. I really wanted people to recover the splendor of creation as uh, really God's first book, the second mm -hmm. being the scriptures, recover a notion of the splendor of the created order as one of the primary ways that you and I begin to walk in a conversation with our Lord. This is a day feed a pronouncement for Catholics that we think the existence of God can be known by reason alone Yes. Simply by reflecting and contemplating thoughtfully about the order and splendor of the universe. Say that uh, one more time. It, well, what is day fide, day, what do, say it again. A day fide pronouncement of Vatican I. That means uh, th this is a non-negotiable claim of the faith. Mm. That the existence of God can be known, the existence of God can be known by reason alone. And and the reason and and that this can be done, this path can be uh, pursued by contemplating and reflecting deeply on the order and splendor and wisdom of creation. In other words, Thomas develops his five ways, the famous five ways for proofs for the existence of God. All of them begin with him looking out his window and observing an ordered universe. And from there, he very carefully starts to construct his arguments to the existence of a first cause, all by, all with the use of reason. It doesn't mm. yet require faith. Now, in fact, of course, this is about God's existence. If we really want to know more fully who God is as Trinity and as GN and Jesus Christ, well, then obviously faith comes to play. But, but from the beginning, the Catholics had such confidence in our experience of the created order, that that was actually uh, the primary way that uh, an average citizen would move from uh, a sort of unknowing God to knowing God. This is different from our Protestant brothers and sisters who would point to scripture as the primary entry, uh, might point to the experience of conversion uh, as the primary entry into the faith. And all of that I think is obviously wise and good, and the Catholic certainly doesn't deny that. But what the Catholic wants to affirm in addition to scripture and the experience of conversion is just simply the beauty of creation as being a path to knowing that God exists, that God is one, that God is good, that God is loving, that you and I are called into a relationship. All of this is available to, to, uh, uh, to human reason, just simply contemplating uh, the beauty of creation. And it's, it strikes me, too, that this sort of contemplative disposition, it really mm -hmm. is a spiritual call, mm -hmm. you know, that that earlier you had mentioned um, sort of this maybe a rejection of this materialism that that one of the things we want to do so often is to become masters mm -hmm. over the material world. Later in the book, you've got this quotation on humility and speaking of of maybe even losing our humility, you say once we lose our humility become enthralled with the possibility of limitless mastery over everything, 
we inevitably end up harming society and the environment. Can mm-hmm. you say a little more about that? Well, sure. The, uh, I, I like to think of the, the sort of classic pushback, you know, is to say, well, aren't human beings, you know, tasked with dominion over the over the earth? You know, we're, we're supposed to exercise dominion, as the scriptures suggest. And dominion means just that kind of mastery. We know what dominion means. Well, I want to pause a little bit and say, well, dominion and, and dominus are related. Dominion is a kind of lordship. Uh, the lord and dominion uh, comes to, from the same Latin root. And so when you take a look at the scriptures and say, well, how did the Lord respond to the created order? And you'll remember in Genesis, if, uh, at the conclusion of creation, he beholds it as good. Mm. So to me, I wanted to use that occasion to say, Maybe dominion is not so much about mastery. Maybe dominion is not so much about rolling up your sleeves and sort of turning it into something uh, meaningful, as you understand it. Maybe dominion means uh, imitating God's posture before his own creation, which was one of beholding and declaring it all very, very good. Mm -hmm. So before you and I sort of race in Uh, with a certain urgency to fix things, we might pause and contemplate the splendor and beauty of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. There is a divine wisdom at work, and you and I would tread on that very, very lightly and and calls forth for us uh, a certain humility and contemplation uh, as certainly a counterbalance to this impulse to to mastery. So, so this is being broadcast on Real Presence Radio. We are, you know, upper Midwest, North Dakota, South Dakota, a bit of Minnesota and a couple other states. So I think maybe a, an obvious question is how does this, how does the mind of the church, when we're talking about ecology, how does this apply to the field of agriculture? Well, that's a great question. Uh, and sort of picking up on some of the themes we were just talking about. When the farmer exercises dominion over his land, he's not standing over a brute fact. He's not standing over a blank slate. He's not standing over a sort of a meaningless pile of material that he or she is going to impress his will on things. And that's, that's a, uh, That's just simply not how the Catholic understands it. When the farmer walks out into his field, he's walking out into a universe that's already divinely ordered, already divinely arranged. And the prudent farmer learns how to work with the wisdom and structure of things and the situation that he finds himself in. Frankly, you'll just run out of budget if you simply try to make a field produce a crop that it isn't really capable of producing. Mm. You've got to sort of read the situation and read the signs of the times and read the circumstances, trust in the providence of the creator and the, and the fertility inherent in things, and capture this uh, in your own skills and work with these things. That's why the medievals called um, agriculture an ars cooperativa, a cooperative art. Uh, the, the agriculture was not so much me uh, imposing my will on, a, on the earth. It was me cooperating with the wisdom and, wisdom and, and rhythms of the earth and learning to uh, draw a harvest from it. Well, one of the things you say early on, I think it maybe is even in the preface or introduction, Dr. Thompson, is that 200 and maybe 44 Catholic right. colleges in the United States and not, not one of them has a program. Uh, in our in our agriculture, right, any, right. Any, I'm asking to speculate here. Why is that? 
Well, that was how I got into the project. You know, I, I started to get interested in the, in the questions by working with Catholic Rural Life, a national organization, 90 years old, um, uh, that's been trying to bring uh, Catholic faith and evangelize the rural communities and farming in particular. I was working with them for several years, and I happened upon their uh, material from the 40s and the 50s. And I noticed that they had this elaborate engagement with agriculture. Uh, in 19, I think 41 it was, in Bismarck, North Dakota, they hold their national conference. 15,000 Catholic farmers attended. And it's philosophers and theologians and agronomists and economists and sociologists and farmers. And it was everything from organic practices to farm management to household management. All of this vital energy going into reflecting deeply on how our Catholic faith shapes our agriculture. Well, so I, I thought I would Google you know, Catholic agriculture today, you know, and then I, nothing came up. And then I do agriculture Catholic, nothing comes up. Agriculture, school, Catholic. And, and of course, that's when I realized uh, the 244 schools, no one has a program in agriculture. Well, what, what happened? That's uh, a, it's a bit longer conversation, which I'm happy to pick up in some other forum, but just briefly, you know, I think what happened is we allowed lower creation to sort of slip through the cracks in our in our intellectual formation. Mm. Way back in the day, uh, if you went to a Catholic university, you took 18 hours of philosophy. Yeah. And that began with a, what they called a philosophy of nature. That began with discussing the sensitive and vegetative souls and if a sensitive and vegetative life. And only then did you take up the question of the human person. Well, now, in fact, in my own university, there's only one course in philosophy that's wow. required. And they, they just simply can't cover all of these questions. Instead, it's typically questions about the human person versus the computer, the human per person versus the machine. Well, those are really vital questions, but you really lose the opportunity to think deeply about what it means to be a human being. And first and foremost, it means to be an embodied, organic, rational animal situated in an ordered cosmos of other embodied, organic creatures. It's an so integrated whole. It's that's the integral ecology. Right. right. So that was if, if I may, just one more point that that that's. You know, the church has has done extraordinary effort in, ter in terms of teaching people about what it means to be a human person. And, and we talk about the human being as a body-soul composite. We talk about the human being as, you know, immortal soul united to a body. All of that's true. What I, of course, what I'm trying to do is develop a theology of the body from the skin outward, if you mm -hmm. will. A theology of embodiment. Mm -hmm. Relocating the human person entirely with an immortal soul to be sure and yes united to a body but that single substance that single organic human being is inescapably yoked to an environment there are no human beings that aren't located somewhere in an environment that is our dignity as human beings we're not angelic creatures and we're not irrational creatures we are rational creatures that is embodied creatures situated within an ordered cosmos and what a beautiful privilege it is to be a spiritual creature united to a body set with this incredible uh, panoply of generosity on God's part that is our beautiful created order.
Well, and there's something too, I think it was later in um, uh, Benedict's pontificate, one of his statements on a world day for foods, he said something about the rural family needing to regain its rightful place at the heart of the social order. Mm -hmm. And he spoke about why that was important. Not only do they grow our food, but they also, uh, in a certain sense, um, grow values. Mm -hmm. There's, and, and I've always been struck by that, that maybe because there's a closeness to nature itself, there's just a natural um, recognition of some of the, the moral order that is baked into the universe. Am yeah. I reading that right? I think you are. And, and uh, so many of our vocations here at the seminary come from those rural communities. And those guys out of those rural communities are just rock solid men. Mm. In part, I think, because they are attuned to a program and a wisdom that's uh, bigger than themselves and wiser than themselves. They do learn to trust and rely on the providence of God in a, in a way that you and I, uh, you know, I, I would say don't do as often and certainly not as richly. If my livelihood depended on the fact that rain was coming, I guarantee you I would be praying for rain in a way I've never prayed before. Uh, so that, that's one level. Yes, I think just being in contact with the natural order. The other thing about rural communities, at least historically, uh, home and work were, um, uh, I want to say united, but certainly uh, intimately connected. Uh, the, you'd be out in the fields and you would come in and eat lunch in your home. Mm. You and I, or at least most of us anyway, are now in industrial settings and, and urban settings. And most of our work takes place outside of the home. In fact, the home, if you go into some of these suburbs, is basically a bedroom attached to a giant garage, right? You drive past these houses and three quarters of the house is the, is the garage door. That's because their life consists in getting in that car and driving somewhere else and spending vast majority of time in the car. Wow. The, the home is no longer the center of labor. One other feature I think really struck me and uh, several of the uh, bishops and popes have reflected on it. Uh, often was the case, at least historically anyway, in agriculture, you had intergenerational contributions. Mm. And by the time the kid was six years old, they were collecting the eggs out in the coop. Now, they weren't necessarily making a living doing that, but they had responsibilities when you were six years old. For you and I who live in urban settings where our work is more professionalized and we are out of the home, there's this extraordinary length of time from one-year-old to 18-year-old, maybe 22-year-old, before they have a sense of contributing to the livelihood of the household. That's really hard for a young person to sit for 22 years without having a sense of contribution. And we see the fruits of that, right? All the challenges of that. Well, well, doctor, this is, uh, there's just, I think we could keep talking for another hour. I, you know, we've got maybe 30 seconds or, or so left here. What do you want to leave people with if they wanted to maybe dive in a little more or what, what could they do? I would just remind them that what we profess when we profess Jesus Christ is the logos made flesh. And there's the connection between creation and Christ. It's not any God who took flesh. It's not Zeus. It's not Mazda. It's the logos, the ordered, uh, ordering of creation, the one through whom all things were made. It's that person, the second person of the Trinity who takes flesh in the person of Jesus. So no Christian can be professing Christ and ignoring his creation. Very good. Dr. Thompson, thank you for joining us on the program. God bless you. Thanks. 
And listeners, uh, we've just had a conversation. The book is The Joyful Mystery, Field Notes Toward a Green Tomism by Dr. Christopher J. Thompson. If this is a, this is a great book for the, the farm family in your network, maybe that gardener, or just somebody who's been thinking deeply about what it means to be a human being in God's created world. Uh, maybe somebody who has a great love for recycling. Again, The Joyful Mystery, Field Notes Toward a Green Tomism by Dr. Christopher J. Thompson. That's all for this week. Until next week, live well.